You're listening to Impulse to Innovation. The Institution of Mechanical Engineers podcast. I'm your host, Dr. Helen Mees. As a global community of mechanical engineers with over 120,000 members in 140 countries, the Institution of Mechanical Engineers has been at the heart of the engineering profession since 1847. The Institution's mission is to improve the world through engineering by sharing the latest news, views and insight into the creative world of technology and the people that make it happen. It's safe to say the engineering community has been under a great deal of strain over the last few years, with socio-economic and political upheaval across the globe, none more so than the manufacturing industry. Both here in the UK and worldwide, the manufacturing sector is facing a number of urgent challenges, which are driving transformational change across the entire industry. The ambition to reach net zero, finding reliable access to sustainable resources and the accelerating pace of emerging technologies and workforce mobility are just some of the key issues the industry is having to address. Manufacturing executives are not only being held accountable by their stakeholders for the company's bottom line, but they are now more than ever being scrutinised by the public and policymakers for their adherence to sustainable processes and supply chain management. Despite all these challenges, the manufacturing industry has managed to remain resolute, finding new ways to address sourcing bottlenecks, logistics backlogs and supply chain collapse. By creating resilience in their networks and applying new tools and approaches such as distributed manufacturing, manufacturers are turning critical risks into strategic advantage. To find out more about the last few years of challenges, I spoke with engineers Nigel Pakensh and Professor Konstantinos Salonitis to get their views on emerging transformations and what's next for the manufacturing industry. My first guest is Nigel Pakensh. Nigel is a partner in Kearney's strategic operations practice based in London. He has advised clients in industries from engineered equipment to healthcare and has been focused on the reconfiguration of global value chains to meet changing needs as supply and demand shocks continue. I began by getting Nigel's thoughts on the geopolitical impact of the last few years. Nigel, welcome to the Eye2Eye podcast. It is great to have you on the show. We find ourselves in unprecedented circumstances in 2023, don't we? What began with Brexit at the start of 2020 and then two years of COVID and the war in Ukraine affecting both global energy and food supplies and now the threat of potential global recession. This is not a good time to be in the manufacturing industry, is it? How have these challenges manifested in the companies that you work with as a specialist supply chain engineer? Uh, yeah, thanks very much for having me, Helen. And I mean, the first thing I'd say uh, is that uh, I do agree it hasn't been a great time to be in the manufacturing industry recently. But I do think we can we can look at it in a different way. Uh, and I really do think it's a fascinating time to be in the industry at the moment. And there are some huge opportunities opening up. And the reason I say that is is I think we really are in a 
a time in in history. And I'm making a pretty pretty grand scale here because I think it is. Yeah, uh, I think we're in a point in history where the the real philosophy behind manufacturing, the way we set manufacturing networks up, is fundamentally changing. And I, I do think the past few years, and I'm thinking about some of the points you mentioned around Brexit, COVID, the war in Ukraine, they've highlighted a lot of the challenges. But I do think underneath all of that, there are some kind of fundamental train trends that have been uh, in effect and predating COVID and, and Brexit and all of that. Yeah. Um, and what I'm thinking of here is, is really the geopolitics, climate change, uh, and digitization as three of the fundamental big change drivers. Mm. Um, so, so what I'd say is, you know, today's supply chain challenges really are far bigger uh, and more complex than in past decades. I'm thinking back to the 2000s now. Right. Uh, during that period, you know, thinking about designing supply chains, thinking about setting up manufacturing networks, it was really about, uh, you know, essentially optimizing across three different areas, cost cash and service levels. Um, and on the cost dimension, it's how much are we spending. On the cash, it's primarily about inventory and how much stock are we holding. Where and on service levels, it's making sure we can uh, supply to our, our customers on, on time. Yeah. But I think recent changes that we've seen really make it clear that that's not enough anymore. Uh, if we design supply chains, if we design manufacturing networks around those uh, three criteria only, uh, then we might end up with a very low cost factory the other end of the world, but we may end up not being able to supply as many businesses, as many manufacturers have, have found out over, over recent years. We might end up with a week or two weeks where we're not actually able to supply our customers and the whole thing falls apart. Yeah. So it's really gone way, way beyond those three. And that, that element of, of resilience and making sure that we've got a manufacturing network that's not just lean and, and slick, but is sustainably so. Uh, and can withstand kind of supply and demand shocks and bounce back from them quickly is really at the the forefront of uh, of supply chain design at the moment, I'd say. Yeah, I mean, in, in terms of preparing for future unexpected events, what do you think the, the supply chain industry has learned over the last few years? And, and what sort of tactics are manufacturing companies now implementing kind of going forward from, from some of these lessons learned? Yeah, I, I think, as you say, the past three years have really seen a, a sudden, uh, I, I'm, I'm going to call it a trauma. <laughs> yeah. Uh, it, right. And, and many, I, I've worked with a lot of, lot of different manufacturing businesses and almost all of them that I've spoken to have experienced that, uh, that trauma in, in one way or another, w w whether it's, uh, you know, demand cliffs or demand doubling overnight or uh, suppliers going down or losing capacity overnight. Um, it's taken many different different forms. And I think over the past three years, I've noticed kind of three different stages, I'd say, uh, in terms of reaction to that trauma. Um, the first stage that, that I've seen is, is essentially saying, okay, we've got a, a factory that's lost capacity, or we've got a supplier that's gone down, or we've got uh, most of our stocks as stuck on a on a ship in a in a canal or something so that's happened right let's let's set up a rapid response team and let's fix this which of course needs to happen but that element is very much sticking plaster it's short term let's fix it it's not going to address the long long term stuff i think there's the second stage that that i've seen is a lot more uh you know when it was one problem after another and 
things keep happening and and now it's it's war in Ukraine and whatever else it is. I think there's been a lot of longer term thinking, but more open ended. I've seen a lot of manufacturing businesses thinking through, okay, what are the future scenarios? What's the looking into the crystal ball of what else could go wrong um, and thinking about the actual events driving risks and, and trying to predict the next black swan. Now that, uh, you know, it's, it's the other end of the spectrum, but that can really be overwhelming as well. You know, trying to think through risks and getting out the crystal ball and, you know, can lead to boiling the ocean and thinking through a million different scenarios, right? So what I'd say is then the third stage is kind of getting to a, a happy uh, medium between those two ends of the, the spectrum uh, and stripping out some of the uh, complexity and kind of open-endedness uh, of the problem and f- really focusing on, on what uh, what needs to be done, but at the same time focusing on what what shouldn't be done, what do we really need to focus on to, to build in resilience. And there are three elements uh, of that, that that I've observed from manufacturing businesses that have really done it successfully. I'd say the first one is actually looking at uh, supply, looking at the manufacturing itself, looking at our supply chains and looking for the vulnerable elements, yeah. the vulnerable uh, nodes or the vulnerable flows uh, within those supply chains, within our uh, plants w- with a kind of event or risk agnostic view. So if we know uh, we've got one factory that can assemble and test this particular widget, and if that factory goes down, we've got one line that can do it. You know, making sure we've got either the redundancy or the flexibility of capacity to be able to ramp up quickly, whatever the cause of of, of downtime or stoppage is. So that's one element. The the second that I've observed is this idea of not not trying to predict events or get ahead of them, but rather re- focusing in on early warning systems. Right. And, and where where that is coming from is really looking at a lot of the challenges over the past three years. I've seen that the actual root cause, the original event which might have triggered problems uh, down the road for manufacturers. So, for example, one of our suppliers that we're single sourced on uh, has gone down or there's a ship stuck, we can't get our materials. But by the time that event actually moves through, uh, you know, supplier communication channels, moves through the planning process and gets moved up the desks, people not wanting to be bearers of bad news and all of that, by the time it actually reaches the desks of people who can make decisions about it and say, right, let's reallocate some stock or let's repurpose this line to get ahead of it, it's often too late. Yeah. Or it might be so late that you're at the back of the queue with the with your suppliers. So really speeding up that communication and empowering people to quickly make decisions on the basis of the early warning is absolutely critical. And that's much easier to do than, than trying to predict events, so to speak. Um, the, the third element uh, is this idea of distributed manufacturing. Uh, and I'm focusing in on, on that term, but, but I think it's very relevant when it comes to actually thinking about the design of manufacturing networks and supply chains. How are we setting up our production? You know, what network of suppliers are we working with? How is that all flowing together to get to an end product reaching the customer? Uh, and re- really that idea is about having redundancy in the system, right? So if we accept that we're working with uh, a network of, of production, um, we've got a, a global value chain, we've got suppliers all over the place, we might have multiple factories making the same thing. Let's make sure that we've got different manufacturing routings built into that network so that we've got redundancy in, in, in case one of those those routes essentially uh, is knocked out. 
I'm very fascinated by this whole idea of distributed manufacturing. And and so how do you go about building resilience into the design of a new factory or into a manufacturer's processes so that you can kind of get to that stage that you've just described? Yeah, so I think it's a a real challenge. And I've I've seen many manufacturers looking to to solve this um, and build resilience in. But I'd say that you know, we're in an interesting period because many, many different solutions have been attempted. And I've seen many different kind of sticking plaster solutions. I've also seen a lot of different uh, technology led uh, solutions that, you know, can offer an assen- essentially a, an off the shelf solution uh, to building in resilience. But I, I think a lot of that is often a red herring right. because, it, you know, to really build in resilience, it takes a wholesale kind of rethinking of strategy and a wholesale change in terms of how we set up processes, how we set up ways of working, how manufacturing organizations are empowered and incentivized and, and then flowing through into the toolkits uh, themselves. So I can, go, I can kind of give you three uh, examples around how um, I've seen resilience built in effectively with, with more of that transformational lens so so looking at both process but how people also how people are doing things and, and building the toolkit around that um, and, and one of those is, is the first point uh, that I made earlier about uh, addressing those vulnerabilities independent of where the, the risk is coming from and working through that is essentially you know what it looks like is an FMEA good old-fashioned failure modes and effects analysis which I'm sure yeah. many <laughs> manufacturing engineers will be familiar with it's basically doing that at a at a higher level, a, a few levels up relative to, to what we're used to and, and thinking about the uh, failure modes across different nodes and flows across a manufacturing network. So your nodes here, for example, might be packaging lines. Your flows might be uh, different shipping routes uh, between uh, suppliers and uh, manufacturing sites. So thinking about what could go wrong across that network and and also thinking through what could happen across different demand scenarios if demand halves overnight or if it doubles overnight uh, what could fail first within that supply chain and then building the mitigations around those those weak points so that's one element the second one that i want to go back to is thinking through early warning systems which you know it sounds quite simple on the surface but again, changing early warning systems and building that into process, it really does require this kind of wholesale change of um, the way people are working in processes, specifically around planning in this case. Yeah. Um, you know, thinking through SNOP processes, demand planning, through to production scheduling. You know, it, and it's, it's rebuilding those processes around a much more dynamic and agile philosophy versus uh, many of those that we're used to 20 years ago, you know, level loading the factories and uh, assuming kind of steady state uh, demand and a, and a fixed forecast. Yeah. Uh, so building that adaptability, but also the, the, the ability to flex capacity up and down to meet changing plans and also building in that empowerment within the planning organization to say, okay, I've lost half my capacity here. I know I need to redirect some stock, which might have cost, cash implication behind it, but I'm I'm empowered as a planner to make that decision and to react quickly to rebalance my, my supply chain. So that's another another big element. 
Um, the third point that I wanted to mention is back to distributed manufacturing. So for me, this really goes back to the drawing boards on how manufacturing networks are set up. And I think the, the interesting aspect for me here is that a lot of manufacturing networks today, I think, find themselves in the, in the situation of essentially being distributed manufacturing setups. Um, you know, the reality is that manufacturing today isn't what, what it was 100 years ago. We don't, yeah. you know, build a, a, a car majority in one site with some suppliers close by. Most supply chains are, are global. Um, you know, commodities are being processed halfway across the world. They're moving halfway across the world again to be turned into various widgets, which are then moved again, turned into components, subcomponents, final assembly, testing. You often find that that end-to-end flow is, is really distributed already. Yeah. So I think the, the shift in thinking when we move towards distributed manufacturing is really taking that network approach to manufacturing as an advantage rather than a disadvantage and saying we've got the ability to produce across these vast global networks we're worried now that if one if one node somewhere across the world kind of fails or if if one of the flows fails uh, that we won't be able to get supply through but we're going to repurpose that with, with the advantages we've got to create different routings essentially yeah. so making sure we've got the ability to manage and adapt the flows across that network to ensure we've always got redundancy. So if one breaks, if, if one node breaks down, if one supplier can't ensure delivery or we, we've got that a container ship stuck somewhere, we always have a, an alternative flow. And that can be managed, uh, again, you know, essentially remotely from planning organization that can sit in Shanghai or Dublin or San Francisco. It, it strikes me, Nigel, that the, there are two aspects here that have really stood out for me. One is that it's very much a systems engineering approach to to ensuring that you've got that flexibility, that the the agile sort of side in terms of the process. But also, there's an aspect now where I think businesses and, and manufacturing companies are recognising that the value of empowering their workforce to make those decisions that it's not just top down kind of instruction, but but actually being able to have a voice at the table to, to say, actually, yeah, I can make that decision for the business, knowing that it's going to make sure that that we get these components on time or we get, you know, these supplies out to to our customers on time. It feels like that, that those two are really fundamental to, to the way that manufacturing companies are now recognizing how they have to work. Yeah, I Absolutely agree with that. And it's one of the points that, you know, I've often ended up with as as, uh, as I peel the onion on a specific manufacturing business's uh, challenges around resilience, building in resilience. You often work back and realize, okay, so- something needs to be addressed in planning. You know, messages aren't getting through quickly enough. And essentially decisions aren't being made quickly enough. And I absolutely agree that a, a huge element of this is bringing that empowerment and the ability to make decisions deeper into the planning organization, you know, to, to, to have that agility, to be able to react quickly to a, to a shock or a shortage in the supply chain, um, you know, the more traditional escalator level, escalate another level. I don't want to make a call on, on this because it involves putting another, whatever, 100,000 pounds into stock or whatever. So escalated another level, that's just not good enough. 
yeah. um, to, to, to move us as quickly as, as we need to. So, so making sure that, you know, the right capabilities are there in the, in the planning organization, but they're, they're also empowered. They know they can make the right decisions and uh, they're tooled up to, to be able to make those decisions and, and can do so confidently is, is, I totally agree. It's a huge element. Yeah. Yeah. It's kind of clear that the supply chain industry is is going to be facing the repercussions of COVID for many years to come. And certainly other global instabilities, such as climate change, as you mentioned, they're already affecting industry, right? I mean, we, we're all fairly familiar with, with those kind of issues. As an engineer and, and the designer of, of these kind of manufacturing processes. What would you say are the, the long-term strategies and initiatives that industry can adopt in terms of preparing themselves to be more, more resilient? So the first thing that I'd say um, is that, you know, again, you, you, you mentioned some of them, but those real underlying shifts uh, that we're seeing, which are, which are changing the, 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 the assumptions of, of how we design, design supply chains, they're, they're here to stay, I'd yeah. say. And I'm thinking about the, the geopolitics that are behind a lot of the trades, tariff uh, shifts that we've seen, but also some of the you know, effects, but also what we need to do about climate change. And I'd add on top of that list, digitization, which is a huge, huge wave of, of change affecting all manufacturers at the moment. I think they're here to stay. And it really is forcing a wholesale shift in how manufacturing is done and how manufacturing networks are designed, uh, but also how they're, they're run um, and set up in terms of people and, and processes. Yeah. Um, in, in terms of some of the, the key elements for me, I'd say, firstly, building the resilience that's needed into manufacturing networks. One of the most important things is focus. And, and by that, I mean, knowing what you're not going to do as much as what you are going to do in the sense that, you know, looking at risks and potential sources of risk uh, can be overwhelming already. Then breaking it down into how those risks could affect our own supply chain. You can get down to the level of, you know, not just uh, production lines, but individual bits of kit. Am I looking at suppliers? Am I looking end to end? Am I looking at my, uh, my own factories? outsourced contract manufacturers. So, so it can really become a huge question very quickly and, and overwhelming. So making sure that you've got the ability to prioritize and know where to focus and what to address, what risks w- will actually have an impact on your manufacturing network and, and which ones won't that you can strip out quickly yeah. uh, from, 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 from the radar, essentially. But also focusing in on what am I going to do about them? Those those risks um, or those vulnerabilities in the supply chain that I really do think could could take down end-to-end supply, focusing on the, the mitigation uh, around those ones. So that aspect of prioritization and focus is, is really critical. The, the second one I'd point out here is around the risks of taking technology-led approach. Okay. And we've seen this, you know, many times before we've seen it during the original 90s kind of ERP uh, implementation waves and uh, many other times. And I've seen it a, a, a lot around kind of looking to build resilience in. There are a lot of great solutions out there, a lot of great technologies that should have a place, and need to have a place within the, within the solution, but taking a technology and applying it without thinking around what, what the right answer is 
in terms of process, what people are doing, how people are incentivized, ways of working, how they're empowered. If the tech is done without thinking through that those those parts first, um, it, it can really be a, a, a red herring um, and lead to well a, a lot of a lot of failures in terms of addressing the uh, the issues. Um, the last point I'd mention on this one is again going back to the need for change in ways of working. It's upskilling people. It's making sure that people have the uh, confidence and the toolkit to to be able to make decisions, make decisions quickly. Um, it's also about communication, making sure the right channels are there to get messages through quickly and then then make those decisions that, that need to be made. Ultimately, an agile supply chain means understanding what's happening in the supply chain quickly, whether it's demand shifting up and down at the uh, at the point of the customer or whether it's an individual uh, route of supply or production point changing. Whenever something like that happens, uh, the communication needs to be as uh, as quick as possible. Uh, so that's the that's the last point I'd mentioned. Probably the uh, the root uh, of a, of a lot of the other points that we've discussed as well. Yeah, absolutely. Communication is key when it comes to uh, being agile and and being able to deal with networks, global networks. Absolutely. I think the the points that you've made there, I think, will be very useful to many of our listeners who are perhaps in the manufacturing industry and trying to look for ways of of addressing some of these issues. But being able to give engineers particularly a voice to be able to make those decisions uh, and to communicate that, I think is is something that we're all learning now post-COVID, post all of these things that have been happening and a complete change in the way that we think and create processes and networks to enable us to, to produce technologies and things today. Nigel, thank you so much for coming on the show today. I've really enjoyed listening to what is quite a complex process, but you've made it sound really achievable in terms of of what we need to do in the manufacturing industry to to address some of these uh, challenges that we face. Thank you ever so much for joining me. Thanks very much for having me, Helen. Yeah, it's been a real pleasure. And I I would say I I totally agree that there is a a huge amount of work coming up uh, for engineers thinking about manufacturing networks. There's a uh, a, a real shift in terms of the way we do things, but also in terms of the actual physical networks around manufacturing. So it really is a, a fascinating time to be to be in the industry. My second guest is Professor Konstantinos Salonitis. Costas is head of the Sustainable Manufacturing Systems Centre and Deputy Director of Manufacturing at Cranfield University. He's a fellow of the IMACE and chair of the Manufacturing Industries Division. His current research focus is on the sustainability of manufacturing systems and processes, the design and the use of lean and green approaches for managing manufacturing. Before getting into the subject of resilient manufacturing approaches, I asked Costas to tell me about the importance of the Manufacturing Industries Division at the IMACE. Costas, thank you so much for joining me on today's show. It's a real pleasure to have you here. In my introduction, I talked about the Manufacturing Industries Division within the institution. Can you just elaborate on that as uh, your role as chair and and what the roles and responsibilities of the division is? Yes, uh, thank you, Helen. So the Manufacturing Industries Division, uh, it's part of the IMAQ, obviously. It's a forum for representatives from the manufacturing community to work together to further manufacturing technology and the implementation of manufacturing engineering best practices. 
So the, the strength of the board is basically derived from the effective networking and commitment of its members. Uh, there is a lot of collaboration going on with uh, key partner organizations. And uh, of course, using the IMAKI brand opens up a lot the, the doors for us so that we can actually help our members excel in what they are expected to do as part of their role within the industry that they are working. So the, the MID, as we call it, is a, is a member-led technical IMAKI board and covers all topics related to manufacturing technology and industry practices. Uh, of course, we are working with the other industry divisions and uh, the other uh, specialist technology interest groups uh, within the IMAKI. And uh, we are trying to make sure that uh, IMAKI is continuing relevance to the manufacturing community through the activities that uh, IMAKI is undertaking, and including support the engineering policy unit that provides guidance to the government. And and also the the MID is is quite a big group, isn't it? It's made it as a division, but yeah. it's made up of lots of different groups, different specialisms. Is that right? I mean, nowadays we have structured ourselves into four main subgroups. Uh, we cover four main areas. One having to do with sustainable manufacturing. So we cover things that are associated with circular economy, resource efficiency, energy efficiency, carbon calculation, carbon accounting, and so on. Um, the second group is the advanced manufacturing technologies. So we're looking into smart technologies for manufacturing, such as Internet of Things, Industry 4.0, automation, advanced man machine tools. The third one is on supply chain logistics. And the fourth one is on skills and development, where we are working, for example, with a manufacturer to come up with the MMX awards that uh, every year we award the, the best manufacturer in, in the country. Uh, we are leading the Apprentice Automation Challenge. I think you had something, uh, a podcast uh, some time ago on this challenge. We did, yeah. Uh, we are working with... Um, uh, we've got our own journal published, I think, quarterly. That's the proceedings of IMAKI, the Part B, and we've got prizes uh, on the best papers. So that's the sort of work that we are doing. Uh, and at the same time, basically, all of these are done in order to, to support IMAKI members in, in basically delivering to their role and actually becoming even better. So promoting basically UK manufacturing as much as we can. Well, that that's a good way for me to lead on to my next question, really, because talking with my my other guest, Nigel Pakensh, about um, you know the, the unprecedented circumstances that we found ourselves in in 2022-23, um, with social and economic instabilities occurring seemingly on a daily basis, and, and how these challenges have manifested in the manufacturing industry as a whole. What's your take on where we find ourselves today in the manufacturing and supply chain sectors? Yeah, asking an academic to, 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 to talk about their take on a subject can take us uh, for quite some time. But <laughs> anyway, uh, I mean, what happened over the last years? We had COVID-19 pandemic, and once this happened, a lot of other things happened as, as, a, as a consequence of, of that initial pandemic. Uh, and during that period of time, uh, UK manufacturing managed to show quite some resilience. It was almost heroic, uh, the, the fact that we managed to actually uh, cope with what was basically requested from manufacturing. And shortly afterwards, after the end of the pandemic, uh, the bounce back on demand has put a spotlight on the manufacturing as a sector 
of stability and national pride. However, in the last couple of quarters, manufacturing has been really trying to, 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 to avoid going into recession. And uh, disrupted yeah. global supply chains remains a, a challenge, a persistent challenge, although there is a cause for cautious optimism. I, 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 I think that there might be some, some light at the end of the tunnel. Uh, so the global manufacturing was set up to work when all stakeholders are following the rules, when everything is actually fine-tuned and everything goes perfectly. Uh, the associated supply chains were designed in order to be able to cope, to be resilient, if you, if you, if you want, when only few highly unpredictable events happen, assuming that there will be enough time after the events for them to bounce back. What we have experienced over the last four years is basically a number of consecutive crisis events from COVID-19 to uh, and the lockdowns uh, that affected the manufacturing suppliers, the disruptions in the transportation of goods, uh, again, to some extent because of the lockdowns, because of the shutdowns, uh, in some cases rather unfortunate events such as what happened with, with the Suez Canal closing, uh, the volatility in, in the prices of raw materials because of geopolitical issues, the way energy prices have been affected by these geopolitical issues, the cost of capital due to inflation's level that we have not seen for many, many decades, actually, yeah. uh, the access to raw materials challenges. I mean, I keep on saying more and more problems now. <laughs> yeah. uh, the, the limited access to workforce due to changes in immigration policies as a result of Brexit to some extent, but not only because of that. These are highlights which we actually experienced in the last four years or so, which are too many to cope. And as a result of that, it was quite challenging for manufacturing and the supply chains to, to actually uh, cope with that. So if I were to give some sort of forecast, I think that the shortage of some critical materials will continue to be an issue uh, with probably things uh, sorting out in the second half of 2023. So the issues, for example, with uh, the shortage in microchips, uh, that has actually affected the automotive manufacturing quite a lot. Yeah. The issues with uh, the war, tal- the, the war on, on talent, basically, uh, will remain a hot topic and will continue to be a top priority for most manufacturers in 2023 and probably beyond 2023. Uh, the energy price cap, which will expire in the next couple of months, uh, will also have an impact on, on the manufacturers. The increase in the corporation tax will also uh, have an impact. And eventually, we'll see some higher prices at the factory doors because of all these issues. So all in all, although manufacturers are a resilient group and have demonstrated quite a lot of unprecedented adaptability in the last three or four years, Growth is not secured, from my point of view, because of externalities of supply chain instability, the energy inflation, uh, and the tight, quite tight labor market. Yeah. But as, as mentioned, I think uh, we need to be optimistic, and I think there is uh, some light at the end of the tunnel. Uh, there is a lot of appetite from the manufacturing sector uh, for investment in automation and green technologies, and that can actually uh, push uh, forward manufacturing. I think in a, in a nutshell, manufacturing and supply chain sectors are greatly affected by what has happened uh, in the environment that they have to operate in. Uh, there have been quite a number of years now of uncertainty and challenges, with not everything being sorted out yet. Uh, but a uh, great of level of resilience has been evidenced. 
and we slowly start seeing improvements and, and some bouncing back. Yeah, we need a, a good few years without any issues, don't we, really, to yeah. uh, enable them to get back to almost to where they were pre-COVID, I suppose. But yeah, I mean, you, you paint quite a quite a grim picture, actually, when you put it in, in that context. And yet the manufacturing industry has has held on, as you said, you know, they've been extremely resilient. In, in all your years of you've spent both studying and teaching the fundamentals of manufacturing systems, as well as working with some of the leading global manufacturers, what would you say were the essential attributes of a good manufacturing system and, and the way that that ties in with what you've just been talking about, how these companies have, have been so resilient over time? Yeah, that's, that's the one million pounds question, isn't it? <laughs> uh, if only there was a recipe which we could follow and then actually uh, prove that there is a way of, of, of being the best in the class. So o- over the years, uh, a number of new ideas uh, or rebranding of existing ideas basically have been uh, proposed. Things like total quality management, process engineering, Six Sigma, Lean Six Sigma, just to name a few basically, uh, that have been focusing on improving processes and the overall performance of, of, of the manufacturing system and supply chains as well. And to a great extent, all present similarities, but they have some differences as well in their focus, as well as in the way they go about achieving improvements, in a sense. Yeah. So the focus has always been in making things faster, cheaper, better. Uh, and... Uh, over the years, we've added other attributes as well, like, such as flexibility, agility, sustainability nowadays is very important, uh, which have been included basically in the last decade or so. Uh, to some extent, all of these ideas have been brought together under the concept of world-class manufacturing. And what that basically means is that we've got a collection of concepts, uh, a toolbox, a toolset, which uh, sets standards for production and manufacturing for companies to follow. And we tend to use Japanese manufacturing as as being the benchmark, although uh, it's not a matter of copy-pasting what Japanese manufacturing is doing, but rather finding out what are the elements of that that needs to be adapted to our realities, to our culture, to our ways of doing things. Yeah. Uh, so... To, to, to a great extent, there are ideas that are associated with uh, concepts such as make-to-order, streamlined flow, smaller lot sizes, collection of parts. I can again carry on and on saying a number of different concepts that have been uh, introduced over the years. But the idea is that, that we use all these techniques to focus on operational efficiency, to reduce as much as possible the waste and create a cost-efficient organization. So this leads to creation of high productivity organizations, which then uh, they can use concurrent uh, production techniques rather than sequential production methods. Uh, but if I were to actually highlight one attribute as the most important one, that would probably have to do with uh, the, the, the development of the workforce, the development of people inside the, the organizations that can then lead the change they can implement change and they can develop this uh, knowledge-based, value-based organizations. Uh, For these reasons, we need to actually be able to engage with leaders who nurture and engage workforce 
uh, with foresight in investing both in the right technology, but also on in the training and the continuous improvement. Sometimes these these things sound as very basic things, but uh, in my opinion, these are the toughest things to continue to strive for, irrespective of whatever the uncontrolled ex- externalities might be. Yeah, most definitely, and, and certainly the the training of workforce, I think, is is has always been fundamental. It's always been the the, the platform from which all of these systems and, and different approaches uh, can be applied. But I think we're, we're at a position now, as you've rightly said, that, that workforce is now fundamental to ensuring that we can become more resilient in times of, of difficulties and these challenges that we face. Do, do you think um, from that point of view, there's, there's greater opportunity now for some of these larger companies to uh, invest more in, in the training and, and upskilling of their workforce and, and providing them with new skills and new approaches to, to these kind of problems? Yes, definitely. We see that uh, every day. Uh, we see that both uh, within IMAKI, for example, there is a lot of interest from large companies to actually uh, invest in giving more time to their employees to, to attend webinars, to attend seminars that are organized by professional engineering bodies. But at the same time, uh, I see that in my everyday job as, as being part of a university where we constantly talking with companies, both large and small and medium enterprises, about uh, offering uh, masterships or basically level seven apprenticeships to to their employees, which would then help them upskill, help them become more competent in in uh, in uh, succeeding in what they are expected to do in their everyday jobs. It it would seem then that that it's not only about um, making sure the workforce is up to date with the latest. Uh, thinking and the latest uh, innovation in terms of how to proceed when it comes to these sort of challenges, but bringing in some of these new approaches as well. And I'm particularly thinking of just distributed manufacturing. It, it seems to be one of the kind of latest in vogue methodologies that industry is adopting at the moment, particularly in, in addressing sustainability of supply chain, which you've already mentioned. Is this type of kind of decentralized manufacturing a long-term solution for industry do you think or is it kind of a passing fad being an academic i'll start with the history of distributed manufacturing of uh, of localized manufacturing and then I'll, I'll answer to your question about whether i think this is something that will stick with us or whether it's uh, something that will go by once we've got into a more steady state uh, external environment yeah uh, distributed manufacturing is is an adaptation. It's a mutation of previous manufacturing paradigms. Uh, we could even say that this goes back to the uh, artisan-based craft way of manufacturing, uh, which was be- before industrial revolution, in a sense. Uh, so if we look at the history of manufacturing, we've moved from small-scale, localized artisan manufacturing uh, before the industrial revolution to a more centralized uh, where we are using economies of scale uh, factory systems. Yeah. Such an approach allowed for increased productivity, which eventually led to globalized solutions where international production um, sites serves basically both regional and global markets. Uh, such a solution works when everything is fine-tuned, when the global supply chains are not disrupted and the resources are easily available, at least to some extent. However, they do come with specific challenges, such as usually long 
unresponsive, I would say, supply chains with manufacturing being far from the point of consumption and putting that into the context of sustainability nowadays. If you're actually uh, purchasing a product that has been manufactured somewhere overseas, then uh, what we actually do is we are offsetting our our carbon emissions of overseas while we are reaping the benefits of using that that product, that that uh, component here locally. Yeah. So if supply chains are disrupted, such as because of pandemics, disasters, geopolitics, we've seen a couple of things over the last few years, then the bottlenecks are experienced by pretty much the whole world at the global level and not just locally. And that's where basically the problem with the centralized uh, model of manufacturing is. so to, to, to some extent, distributed manufacturing can allow us to move from economies of scale and embrace economies of scope. We've got, uh, we are, through distributed manufacturing, we bring the actual manufacturing closer to the end use. Yeah. And by doing so, the consumer can actually experience the environmental impact of their purchasing decisions. So we are actually changing behaviors as well. So there is also the social aspect of distributed manufacturing, which needs to be considered as well. And there is a lot of value and a lot of interest, especially from research point of view, to understand better what is the impact of, of, of uh, localized distributed manufacturing. Yeah. Uh, so it is really not, it is a no-brainer that manufacturing assets will need to become shared and flexible because that helps us a lot with actually coping with the challenges coming from the global uh, supply chains. It helps us with uh minimizing the risk of disruptions in a sense uh, and company, companies to some extent are already realizing that clustering of certain types of manufacturing so for example aerospace manufacturing in certain areas they create uh, benign supply ecosystems uh, flexible ownership and pay by users and image uh, are emerging in a sense in some sectors such as food drink cosmetics printing there is also the idea of Using distributed manufacturing, you can make changes to the final product, so that can have an impact on personalization, customization. This can actually prove quite a, a selling point for yeah. uh, for the health sector. Yeah. But having said all of these nice things about uh, distributed manufacturing, I don't think that uh, we can have a, a one-size-fits-all solution. So distributed manufacturing, from my point of view, from my research, is here to stay but it will never be able to dethrone centralized global manufacturing for all products and all applications. We will end up uh, with these different paradigms uh, complement each other in specific areas uh, where, for example, mass customization and personalization is important. Then the localized, the distributed manufacturing makes sense in cases where we need the economies of scale because of the demand, then we will still probably rely on centralized manufacturing systems. Uh, But there has been a lot of research in this area. There has been a lot of discussion, both academically, but also from practitioners' point of view. Uh, A lot of technological developments over the last years seems to be enabling the the transition to more localized manufacturing, things like 3D printing, additive manufacturing, uh, the whole ICT support that is required in order to be able to, to run this sort of uh, manufacturing systems is is now available. The fact that we've got sensors that are very easy to, to purchase and they can capture a lot of data, both from the process but also from the component point of view, 
the, the whole development of data analytics can provide more insights, basically, on, on what to do with the component. Uh, the whole idea of circular economy is also something that can help a lot because yeah. imagine that you've got a local factory, a local micro factory, a factory in a box, as we tend to call them, and then you can uh, source your raw material from uh, uh, waste locally, which then closes the loop, which then uh, helps us become more carbon net zero, which is essentially what we are trying to achieve in the next 20 years or so. Uh, so the, the, all these things are working together without, without, however, neglecting the fact that there are also some challenges. Challenges associated, for example, with the governance, the regulations of how we will actually manage the IPs, for example, for a part that is manufactured locally. Uh, there is also the element of, of, of um, capital expenditure, the fact that you need to invest in, in facilities, which then you end up investing a number of times because you are uh, putting these sort of facilities in a number of different locations. Yeah. Uh, but there are other ways of actually compensating for that. For example, you are you're uh, increasing the number of jobs available locally. So there are these, these, these opportunities. Going back to your initial question, yes, I think decentralized distributed manufacturing will stay but it's not going to replace entirely the, the 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 centralized the globalized manufacturing systems yeah it sounds sounds like it's it's going to uh, complement the the existing or the more traditional methods and i i guess it gives manufacturers the opportunity to to pick and choose to sort of cherry pick what sort of systems work best depending on what products they're developing or or you know where the um the centers of manufacturing are or the where customers are buying these products from so so i suppose that it's um it's an opportunity for them to create also redundancy in their yes. in their processes whether or not they they choose to go with one or the other yes that's that's exactly what basically you achieve by using assets which are decentralized you if you've got a bottleneck somewhere it doesn't stop your production everywhere you've got the chance to actually shut down one of your local facilities, maybe for preventive maintenance reasons, but still be able to to run the other facilities in other local communities, local uh, establishments, so that you can carry on producing. Uh, but there are also hybrid methods. So you might have, for example, the standard parts of a, a component of a, of a product manufactured somewhere centrally, and then you might have localized uh, sprockets in, in your hub where you are actually uh, making the customization needed for that specific region, for that specific country, for that specific area. Uh, that's the sort of hybrid technologies, hybrid methods that can be actually used, especially because nowadays we've got the ICT capability, especially yeah. because nowadays we've got this community, this this uh, networking ability, which otherwise would not be possible. Yeah, and and that nicely leads me on to to kind of my next question, really, which is having seen all of these transient effects and these the knock on effects of uh, of what's been going on over the last few years. What kind of techniques and approaches uh, are you applying to be able to to model or predict? manufacturing processes in the future how how are you finding new ways to uh, to create manufacturing systems now to a great extent we are using simulation 
And there are a number of different simulation techniques depending on what someone might want to, to model. Uh, so, for example, if someone is modeling at the enterprise level or at the supply chain level, you might be using things like system dynamics. But if uh, if someone wants to, to to model down to the process level, it might be discrete event simulation. And there are hybrid methods in between agent-based modeling and so on. Uh, and this is something that we can do nowadays, even in, in a more proficient and a more accurate way because of the adoption of, of digital twinning. Uh, so digital twin methods that would enable us to, to, to run what-if scenarios uh, of optimization uh, have already started becoming the de facto approach for modern manufacturing. Yeah. Uh, so we do simulate everything before we reach a decision in order to be able to make uh, a, a really well thought decision without considering uh, subjectivity or bias or anything. That will also uh, require a new generation of engineers, basically, who are trained in digital skills and they can actually use rigorous simulation techniques. And it's not so much about knowing how to use the software that it's needed for the simulation. It's more about understanding what the software is predicting and actually being able to 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 sense check whether that makes uh, that, that 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 is logical or not. Yeah. So building that critical thinking is is quite important for the next generation of of, of engineers. So one of the things that is quite uh, trendy nowadays is this uh, online platform for asking questions and getting some really well thought uh, answers on based on artificial intelligence and chat GPT. Uh, we need to have people who are able to filter this information and decide whether that information is actually meaningful and whether this can help with solving problems. Yeah. Uh, so these are the sort of techniques that we have been developing in academia i mean i'm going to talk about my, my my university we are working in this area at Cranfield university for many years and uh, they are now coming of age and we have integrated these methods these techniques in pretty much all our courses that we offer uh, at the postgraduate level because Cranfield is only postgraduate level university it sounds like there are going to be some great opportunities for engineers both in the mechanical sector, in our, our sector, in the traditional manufacturing industry, to learn a lot of new skills, a lot of new approaches to problem solving and to modelling so that we can ensure the resilience of the manufacturing industry going forward into the next decade. Costas, thank you so much for taking the time to talk to me today. It's been really insightful as to what is quite a complex issue facing the manufacturing industry. It's been a pleasure to talk to you. Thank you. Thank you very much as well. It has been a pleasure. That's all for this month. In next month's episode, we will be exploring the hydrogen economy and what role hydrogen will play in the reduction of emissions from power, transport and industrial sectors as part of the UK government's commitment to achieve net zero by 2050. We'll be talking with delegates and members of the IMEC's management group who are attending the Engineering Challenges in the Hydrogen Economy 2023 conference, and we'll be getting their thoughts on hydrogen generation, storage and supply. We will also have a special episode in late March focusing on artificial intelligence and machine learning where we will be finding out about the explosion in AI research 
what impact it will have on the world of engineering, and how the iMacKey itself is adopting AI-based solutions as part of its digital transformation. You've been listening to Impulse to Innovation, the Institution of Mechanical Engineers podcast. Thanks for listening. We'd love to hear from you. So if you'd like to share any news or any feedback with us, then please email us, podcast at imakee.org. All the information on this episode can be found in the episode notes.